before I became a Christian, I read a, a book about Job, uh, found at the library. I didn't know it was about a guy in the Bible, but I, up until that point, I was calling him Job. But when I became a Christian, I realized the proper way to say that is Job. How would you know that, right? Anyway, we should be more caring about non-Christians and biblical pronunciations. So Job was a man in the Old Testament and he was uh, rich, he was happy, he had a big family, he had fields and commerce and business, had lots of friends, he, everything was going great for Job, he was, just had it all, he was kind of the man. And uh, then in a strange kind of uh, situation, God agrees to allow Job to basically lose everything lose his family, his, his wealth, his possessions, his friends to a degree, uh, just lose it all, his physical health, and he loses everything in a sudden catastrophe and calamity. And the whole of Job, the rest of the kind of 36 chapters, uh, uh, is Job wrestling with why, why does God allow such suffering, such evil to befall people who love him and follow him? And it's interesting because in our culture, you'll often hear that, you know, people say, well, if there's a loving God, you know, why is there so much suffering? As though they've come up with some original question. But actually, the Bible deals with these things in great detail. This is a whole book, 42 chapters or so, dealing with this great human question of why is there suffering? Why do good people suffer? And it's a wrestling through that. It's probably not a book that ends in a way that we might be satisfied with in one level. Job is restored and everything kind of works out in the end in, in so many ways. But in so many other ways, our questions aren't answered directly and clearly. And if anything, God actually turns around and says, I don't have to answer your questions. I'm God. In fact, Job... I have some questions for you. So it's interesting. <laughs> so if you're going to ask God questions, that's fine. Just be prepared that he's allowed to answer how he wants to, uh, not how we would um, imagine he must. So with that in mind, Claire, where's Claire? Claire, would you like to come and, and read this passage here? This is after Job has lost everything. So he's just at a point of, um, yeah, you'll hear it. Um, and perhaps don't worry about putting on the screen. I just want you to listen. Just listen to, to Job's prayer and his, his cry. It's heart-rending. Um, yeah. Um, yes, this is from Job mm. chapter 3. And it's headed, Job speaks. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse leaveth them. 
May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Mm. Sam, can I get... Sorry, mate, can I get the, the clicker, pointer? Thanks, thanks, Claire. Um, that's really... It's really heartfelt and really sad um, that Job is brought to that place. I don't know, maybe you've had a time in your life when you've kind of wondered, why was I born? I wish I never was born. Why did this happen to me? Job's certainly in that place. Thanks, Sam. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's feeling it. So we talk about prayer. We've looked the last few weeks, adoration of looking up to God and like praising God for who he is, his attributes, his goodness. We've looked at petition. Um, Trent took us through petition and, and talking to God about our needs. And last week, Amanda went through intercession and, and praying for others, praying for those who are hurting and lost and in trouble and interceding for, for situations and places. And then today, praying when we're hurting, when we're suffering and what that looks like. Uh, okay, to move it forward. This picture here, I hope that you can see it. It's a portrait of Jesus in the temptation, the desert, by a, I think it's a Russian artist, um, Ivan Kremskoy, 1871. And I like it because it's such, there's such a brooding heaviness over Jesus. There's such a, a weight of suffering on his shoulders. And you think of, he's in the desert before he starts his ministry, and you think of what he's going to face moving forward he's going to face the 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 anger and the the bitterness and the hatred of his own people the the jewish nation he's going to be um he's going to face the the threat and the death of threat of of the roman empire the powerful military occupier he's going to offer his life he's going to bear the weight of all the evil and all the sin and suffering and death of humanity all of the violence on his own shoulders on the cross and he's there alone in the desert and he's praying when it hurts and when it's hard and he begins his his ministry out of the desert and he continues on to the cross uh, and he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief says the prophet isaiah he he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief now we've got to be careful in our culture because we're very much a happy culture, a kind of you know comedy culture. Everything has to be fun and light and entertaining. We're an entertainment culture, but actually in the church as Christians, we need to hear uh, things like this: that that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he understands grief, he understands loss, he understands pain and trauma and suffering firsthand because he lived that in the flesh. He's not a distant, far-off deity just reigning untouched by our humanity he wore our humanity and he knows what it is to suffer he knows what it is to experience loss when job's three three friends came around him after he had suffered um, those great losses they did pretty well initially um, they they gathered around him and they were just overwhelmed by his suffering and they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. They just sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. 
Now, there's the best, most amazing piece of grief counseling you could ever find. And if you want to know ultimately the best way to help someone who's suffering a lot, to put it quite bluntly, shut up. <laughs> you don't need, people don't need words in that depth of suffering or grief. And they started so well. They saw his suffering. They just sat with him. They just sat quietly with their friend and they said nothing. But then as the book goes on, the whole thing is about them offering all their advice and all their opinions and all their great wisdom to help Job out of this suffering. And in the end, we'll see that God actually is not too happy with them doing that. At that point, they're doing really well. So just a few things about suffering. There's a number of ways we can suffer. We can suffer for our own foolishness. Who's ever suffered because of a bad decision or a mistake? Yeah, come on. We can suffer because of the sins of others. We can suffer because others have inflicted harm upon us through no fault of our own. We can suffer through no fault of our own with war, people in Ukraine right now. We can suffer through pandemics, through no fault of our own. Natural disasters, the cursed fallen creation, people get eaten by crocodiles or whatever, you know, hurricanes come. We can suffer because the creation is broken and cursed and there's a lot of ways that you can suffer through no fault of your own. We can suffer from spiritual evil, from powers of darkness, these malevolent dark forces at work in our world that God is still allowing to be at work until the time of his choosing. We can be um, victims of suffering there. We can suffer through imaginary suffering, through imagining things in the future or that cause us fear and anxiety. The possibility of threat can be called um, anticipatory grief. We can look ahead and see things that are challenging or hard or difficult and we can suffer in the present even though they haven't happened. And we can suffer for doing good, being good as a Christian. And we should expect suffering uh, as Christians is what the Bible says. Now, I want to talk a little bit about suffering and trauma from i guess a more you know therapeutic perspective if you like um and to acknowledge that it's, it's real and another thing we struggle with in our culture is we have a culture of high avoidance with suffering and trauma which is why we're so heavy alcohol dependent there's a lot of drug abuse in our culture a lot of people self-medicate because they ignore trauma and suffering and loss and and just kind of try and make out it's not there and they end up trying to deal with it in other ways. But trauma and suffering are real. And Serene Jones has written a great book, a Christian author on trauma, he says this, a traumatic event is one in which a person or persons perceive themselves or others as threatened by an external force that seeks to annihilate them and against which they are unable to resist and which overwhelms their capacity to cope. So trauma and suffering is things that come in from outside of us which threaten our ability to cope. They can overwhelm us. A sudden loss of a loved one or a sudden injury or a sudden illness or an invasion from an army or a pandemic coming. I remember the fear I felt in Melbourne early 2020 when we went to the first lockdown and just you could sense the fear in society, the, in the culture around that. The supermarket shelves were being emptied and... There was a sense of no one knew what was coming. We're going to see bodies lined in the street or whatever. There was a, a sense of this traumatic event coming in on us. And she goes on to say, the ancient Greek word for trauma means a wound, like an axe hit, hitting something and making a wound. 
an injury inflicted upon the body by an act of violence. To be traumatized is to be slashed or struck down by a hostile external force that threatens to destroy you. This visual image highlights this assault-like character of trauma. It involves an attack by an external agent upon a vulnerable human body in such a way that a wounding occurs. But not just a physical injury, unlike external injuries, a wounded psych or a wounded soul doesn't always manifest the signs of harm or suffering that we might associate with violence. But such harms, mental, psychological, soul, are no less damaging than more visible ones. Like mortal wounds or, or flesh physical wounds, they can destroy human life. And precisely because they are invisible, they can do so in secret, hidden ways. There are things that can happen that ha affect us inwardly that you can't see physically. Like if you see someone coming towards you and they've lost a leg, you realise they've experienced a serious trauma, they've experienced a serious wound. But what if they've lost a psychological or mental or emotional leg? What if something's happened to them in their life which has been deeply wounding, deeply impacting? You can't see that, right? Which is one of the reasons why I think Jesus says, don't judge one another. Because we can't know, not don't judge between right and wrong, but we can't know when we look at someone and talk to them the extent of trauma or suffering or pain that they've been through or that they are going through. But God knows and God sees and God offers hope and healing as well. Um, in addition to a bleeding arm or broken leg, Serene Jones goes on, violence can leave you with a wounded soul a life marked by obsessive thoughts, acute anxiety, depression, disassociative states, dissociative, oh, <laughs> you know, you get it, you read it for yourself, and low <laughs> disassociation, I can say it that way, and low-grade forms of misery lingering so long that they become normalised and cease to appear wound-like at all. What she's saying is, if we don't attend to the suffering, the, the loss, the trauma, the grief in our lives, it, it just becomes part of normal life that we don't realise anymore that we're actually dealing with these wounds, that the wounds just become normal and they become unhealed as we neglect or ignore them uh, and just try to push on. So Peter says to the Christians in the early church, don't be surprised at at the fiery ordeal you're going through. Um, you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. And I think that's important for us to remember that suffering and trauma and loss is not something to be ashamed of. And probably when I reflect on last week when I got quite passionate in prayer at the end there and maybe expressed some frustration, I, I thought about it this week and been reflecting and praying about it, thinking, yeah, I really want the church to be a safe place for people to express pain and suffering i don't want to feel that we need to i mean you know we don't need to fall apart in a mess all the time but i want us to i want the church to be a place where we can express pain or suffering without feeling judged or, or you know looked at strangely that if someone's crying in their seat or cries out in prayer during our prayer time it's okay it's okay to express um, those things as a community and as we go on you'll see even more why that is important. Just a few things 
that I want to say before we go into the Job text a little bit more. Asking why I'm suffering helps no one ever. Now, we do it, and it's natural. We do ask why. But ultimately, it doesn't help. And Job, in a sense, isn't so much asking why as he's telling his story. He's expressing his experience to God and to his friends and community. But he's not really asking why in a lot of ways, though though at times he does. And at the end, God kind of says this to him. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this who obscures my plans? He's talking to a guy who's just lost everything. He's been through massive trauma and loss. So God comes through very strong here. Who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you will answer me. There's a sense in which it's natural to ask why. And I hear people say, when I get to heaven, you know, I'm going to line up there with God and I've got all my questions I'm going to ask God. And I say, you know, look, you lovable buffoon. I understand that. (laughs) You know, we all feel that way sometimes, but that's not going to happen. When you stand before God and see God, you're you're not going to have a list of questions. You're going to fall down in wonder and worship and weeping. Um, And so this is what comes through in the Job story. Job's like, you know, God, I have all these questions. And, and Job, uh, God comes back and says, well, actually, I've got some questions for you. Brace yourself like a man, Job, because I'm going to ask you some questions. So asking why in one way, ultimately, helps no one ever, though it's understandable. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Like, Job, are you trying to correct me? Let him who accuses God answer God. And then right at the end of the book, Job kind of goes to to God. He says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you, God? He sees God. He has this vision of God and his glory. I put my hand over my mouth. Have you ever said something and gone, I wish I hadn't said that. This is what Job's doing. He's like, he's just done 36 chapters of speaking. (laughs) He's like, "Uh uh-oh. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice and I will say no more the other thing I'll say is whatever you believe whatever worldview you have whether you're a Christian a non-Christian a Hindu a Muslim an atheist whatever whatever worldview you have you will suffer and your worldview needs to answer some questions about that suffering it's not very well for say atheists in our culture to go well you know how can you believe in loving God if there's suffering in the world and you know evil okay that's a good question but what's your answer atheist worldview What's your answer to suffering and to pain and loss? You're still going to experience it. And so Scottish skeptic David Hume wrote once, Were a stranger to drop suddenly into this world, I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine or pestilence. Honestly, I don't see how you can possibly square all of this with an ultimate purpose of love. Now, that's a powerful argument. But I guess the other side is the skeptic has to answer, well, how do you account for suffering? And what's your answer to suffering? And what will you offer people who are suffering? They have to still have an answer. G.K. Chesterton was a, a Christian author around the same time, and his reply, in, in a sense, was, when belief in God becomes difficult through questions like that the tendency is to turn away from god but in heaven's name to what if it's hard enough to deal with a world 
if suffering in the light of a loving God, I think it's infinitely more horrific to deal with the world of suffering in the light of an empty, godless, impersonal universe. I don't think that's a great um, alternative. So, what happens to Job? Let's have a look. Three, three movements towards healing that happen in Job. And happen in the Bible a lot, actually, through the Psalms, these three movements towards healing from suffering. Pray always in suffering. Now, this is counterintuitive because often when we're suffering, we're in pain and struggle. I know as a pastor over the years, people drift off from church, from God, because it's too hard. And it's hard to pray. It's hard to stay connected to God. I think the one thing that can help us in this from the book of Job and the Psalms is we're allowed to pray our actual story. We're allowed to pray the actual pain. We don't need to protect God from our painful feelings and our painful situation. We don't need to try and prop God up by only saying nice things to him. Job speaks it as it is. It's heart-wrenching, some of his speeches through the book. It's just amazing. He's so viscerally honest, so vulnerable, so authentic, so open with what he's feeling towards God. It's not this pious, as Sarah said earlier, using language that we think we have to use. Pray always, but pray your actual story, your real embodied and lived experience, not what you think you would say, should say. And Job says, Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He's speaking the truth of his reality to God. And he's doing it within the community of faith as his friends are around him. Pray always in suffering. And Serene Grace in her book goes on to say, talk about these three movements. The first movement towards healing is the person or persons who have experienced trauma need to be able to tell their story. Don't shut people down. This is where counselling can be really helpful. So while we have life well ministry, it can be helpful to actually talk with someone, a caring uh, um, Christian therapist or psychologist or counsellor, actually help us to tell our story. The events need to be spoken pulled out of the shadows of the mind into the light of day. When we take this insight into a collective register, it means that as a community, she's talking about the church, we need to give testimony. We need to be able to speak what's happening. The truth of the violence in its full scope must be articulated. We have to tell our story to God in prayer and in community as well. And we have to know that we are heard, and that's the second movement towards healing. Secondly, pray your suffering with others which is probably the last thing you want to do if you are really suffering or feeling in in traumatic situation as painful counterintuitive and as repulsive as the thought may be personal healing in the bible comes through community it comes through being connected with others which is often the very thing we don't want when we're suffering when we're feeling shame or trauma Uh, And yet Job is surrounded by his friends. He's got a community around him. If you read the Psalms, so many of the Psalms are communal prayers. They're communal. They're to be prayed together, to lament, to, to share that experience together. And so Psalm 80 says, How long, this is a communal prayer, How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? 
You have fed them with the bread of tears, Lord. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbours and our enemies mock us, Lord. It's a communal prayer. They're together praying this sense of where is God when we're hurting, when we're suffering. So as difficult as it might be, we need to pray our story and our suffering. We need to pray our experience to God in suffering. We need to pray with others in suffering as well. And if you are praying with someone in suffering, remember Job's friends in their best moment, they were just with the person suffering in prayer, quiet prayer, not necessarily trying to solve their suffering or their pain. And Serene Jones goes on to say, there needs to be this second movement, someone to witness our testimony, a third-party presence, and that's ultimately God, that not only creates the safe space for speaking, but also receives the words when they are finally spoken. Collectively, as a church, we need to be willing to look hard at the events unfolding around us, see them honestly, and receive them fully. At church communities, we need to create space to together share the pain. Maybe we're not all feeling that pain or that threat, but many of us might be at a particular time in life. And we need to give space for that to be voiced. Thirdly, we need to pray our suffering to God. We need to pray in our suffering with others. And we need to pray faithfully and patiently. Like we're a quick fix society as well. We're an avoidance society, avoiding pain and suffering. We're a quick fix society. Give me something now. I need something to help now. You know, I need, and you get preachers like this too. A lot of Christian bad theology out there, you know, it'd be kind of, you just do this, this, and this, and you'll get that, that, and that. It's like this formula. And it's not always the way. These things take time. Job is 40-odd chapters of, of a man expressing his suffering. It's not like I'm going through a hard time. Oh, and then I prayed. Oh, and then everything worked out. No, it's like I'm going through a hard time, and then I prayed, and then I prayed, and then I prayed, and nothing much happened, and then I prayed, then I prayed with others, and nothing much happened. It's, it's quite a process there. But healing does come, and there is hope. And obviously, we know something that Job didn't know uh, through Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but pray faithfully and patiently in suffering. In Christ, a new story and new hope rises eventually. Like Good Friday happens. It's bad, it's black, it's dark, it's death. Eventually, Sunday comes, and there's life, and there's hope, and new life. So at the end of this story, Job has to pray for his friends because God's upset at them for their bad advice, for just having all these opinions and all this poor theology that they just heap on Job to try and fix his suffering and help him. When they started so well, they just sat there crying with him, silently in his pain. And then they came in, they had to try and fix it and had to try and sort everything out. And God's not happy with that. And maybe he wouldn't have such a long book if they just sat there silently. <laughs> maybe Job might have found healing more quickly. Who knows, right? But at the end, Job prays for his friends. The Lord restored Job's fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters, everyone who had known him came and ate at his house. They had a big feast and party. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And this is, is the hope of resurrection. This is the hope of the kingdom of God. This is what, as Christians, we believe and hold to, that, that this hope is real, that suffering is real, trauma is real, pain is real, and we need to acknowledge it. We need to have compassion. We need to pray to God in it, pray with others through it, 
We need to pray patiently and faithfully through that time. But ultimately, we believe the best is yet to come. There is healing. There is life to come. But just this third movement of healing, Serene Jones finally says, the testifier, that is the person in the suffering, and the witness that the community or God must begin the process of telling a new and different story together. We must begin to pave a new road through the brain. And she means that technically, like rewiring our brain as we tell new stories about the future and our hope. This third requirement for recovery is an extremely tricky business. It does not mean forgetting the past. Rather, it means re-narrating the events, creating a new story in such a way that agency or your ability to, to change and to grow is returned and hope a future is possible. So if you've been traumatised, wounded, deeply hurt in your life, it's not necessarily that you can just forget that. It, it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your story. But it doesn't have to be the whole story. It doesn't have to be the totality of your story. As we look in our faith, as we put our hope in Jesus, we, we, we begin to, to share that new story that he offers and that he invites us into. The new story that is coming, uh, the kingdom of God. As the book of Revelation says, uh, the, the vision of the end of the age of heaven and earth, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. See, it doesn't say he will answer every question that you've had. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. The great trauma, the great sufferer, causer. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. These old order of things have passed away. But now there is pain. Now there is mourning still. Now there is suffering. We live in between. We're, we're Easter Saturday people. We live in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. If the kingdom had already come in its fullness, if God has solved everything already, he wouldn't say, Jesus, pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in heaven. It's coming in its fullness. It's begun. But we're a now and not yet people. We're a Good Friday, Easter Sunday people. If we're too far on Good Friday, we can become despairing without hope and without the faith of resurrection. If we're too far in resurrection, we can ignore suffering. We can ignore hurt and trauma and just say to people, get on with it. Jesus loves you. It's all going to work out. We've got to balance that there carefully, that we're Easter Saturday people. We've got to acknowledge suffering and pain and trauma in our own lives. And in people in our church community, I don't know all of you that well at this stage, but I know enough, having been a pastor for a long time, that there would be people here this morning with significant private pain and suffering that no one else knows about, except maybe their closest friends or partner. And it's difficult, and you carry that, and it's hard. And God knows, and God acknowledges that. God wants 
us to acknowledge that and to say it's okay. You don't need to be ashamed for suffering or being in pain. And then on Easter Sunday, we, we have the hope of resurrection. We proclaim that this is our story when we gather together. We, we come together and proclaim that hope and that resurrection. So those three movements of, of moving towards healing in suffering is as hard as it is to pray in suffering, to pray your actual story, to pray your actual experience, not to feel any compulsion to pray in some certain way or think you've got to prop God up somehow. He'll be upset with you because you're suffering and you're struggling and you're experiencing trauma or, or grief. Pray your reality to God in suffering. Secondly, pray with others. Invite people into that. And if you are invited into that space with someone who's suffering, remember, direct your words to God, not to them. Pray with them in that suffering and stand with them and sit with them in that suffering. And be prepared, you know, for the long haul because suffering and grief has its own pathway and time frame. We can't force healing. Thirdly, pray faithfully and patiently in suffering. A new story emerges and we tell that new story to one another. The story of Jesus, the story of the kingdom, the story of the hope to come. Let me pray with us as the team comes up and I'm going to pray from a psalm and I'm doing this, I guess, on purpose, if you like, um, in that this is the only psalm in the Bible out of 150 that doesn't end with a joyful note of praise. It's the only one. There's one. And I think it's important that we pray it as a church. I'm going to pray it for us. Um, just to give voice to the reality of suffering. Because I think mostly as churches we err on the side of happiness and praise and everything's going to be great. Which it is, ultimately. But I want us to get, hear this and give voice to this prayer from Psalm 88. So join me in prayer. And then as soon as we finish I'd like us to sing. Let's pray. And I pray this on behalf of people who are here, who are suffering or traumatized or carrying grief in some way, and for those who may well experience that in the future. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles. And my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the grave. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom you remember no more. Who are cut off from your care. Lord, you have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me, Lord, with your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? 
Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared to the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have been in terror and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me and your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friends and my neighbours. Darkness is my closest friend. Amen.